squealing banjos, yeah, the irony should not escape you. I could tell you who should be squealing like a pig. person that's trying to save the beasts. All right, maybe that's a little harsh. Hello, this is William Fink. This is the Christogenia Open Forum. It is Monday, February 7th, 2011. I'm going to talk tonight about end-time prophecy. Because this seems to be a lot of confusion. Well, well caused by one certain Israel identity pastor who's suddenly making a... Sh- Making a sharp left-hand turn and driving off the bridge to the next age. Daniel 2.44 prophecies an eternal kingdom, which Yahweh would set up here on the earth, before the fall of the Roman Empire, in the days of these kings. Daniel 2.45, which talks about the destruction of Rome at the hand of the Germanic peoples, proves the veracity of the interpretation of that kingdom of Daniel 2.44, as referring to the Saxon peoples or the Germanic peoples of, of Europe. Let me read Daniel 2.44 and 2.45. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. That's important. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, meaning Daniel's first four kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king, meaning Daniel's revelation of the vision to Nebuchadnezzar, what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and, and the interpretation thereof is sure. And of course the stone cut out of the mountain without hands has to refer to Germanic tribes that that um, destroyed Rome and eventually came to world hegemony, which is um, the next prophecy. And that's Daniel chapter 7, which is a prophecy which actually parallels Revelation chapter 13. I hope to cover that at great length soon in my Revelation series. Proof of, of this parallel is too long to discuss here. Yet Daniel chapter 7 Verse 27 talks about the hegemony of the people of Yahweh after the passing of the second beast or the papacy of Revelation 13. This can certainly be verified through a study of the entire prophecy, but for now, I will read Daniel 7:24 and 25. And the ten horns of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. That refers to Justinian, who established the temporal power to papacy and defeated three great kings out of the Goths and and the Vandals. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of a time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. That's a description of the papacy and the rule of the popes over the kings of Europe for 1260 years. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him, him meaning Yahweh our God. Now now it can be indeed shown that these passages in Daniel have long been fulfilled, but not quite completely yet. 
these, this, the, the evidence of this is that the Anglo-Saxon nations have had world hegemony ever since the passing of the papacy. We haven't always used it for good, but we have had it. So, if the kingdom has already been given to the saints of the Most High, what is it that's going on now? And, and to understand that, we'd have to understand a whole lot of parallel prophecies, mystery Babylon, and a lot of things like that. For now, I'll just discuss Revelation, uh, and, and I'll read Revelation chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast... We see the same mention of ten horns in Daniel 7, right? These shall hate the whore, and make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now, the whore is the great city. And, and I would say that it's basically the same city that we see at the end of the book of Revelation that descends from heaven. The city is the people of God. And, and we have allowed this mystery Babylon, this Babylonian system, to rule over us. Verse 17 in Revelation chapter 17. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Today our kingdom is handed over to the beast. And yes, most of us, there's a few of us that are aware of this, but most of our race, like 99% of it, agrees. They like this world system. They like this global commercialism. They buy all these cheap products from overseas. They buy into this system 100%. They love the beast having control over us. They worship the Jew. They worship the beast. They worship his image. They do it every day. It, it's, I mean, the, the evidence that this prophecy is fulfilled as we, as we breathe is astounding. Why is the kingdom of the people of God given over to the beast? Well, it would have to be because of our own disobedience. We see this in Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 through 68, where we see the curses of disobedience, which are the consequence of our apostasy from our God. And here I'm going to quote parts of Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I'm really only going to quote the, the parts which are most pertinent to the issue at hand. And these things we have to understand while they apply to our ancient Israelite ancestors are surely an example for us this very day. Deuteronomy 28.15 But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken under the voice of Yahweh thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Among those curses, verse 18, Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body. That's our children. Verse 25, Yahweh shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Verse 26, and thy carcass shall be meat unto all the fowls of the air, and to, unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. Verse 30, thou shalt betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. Tell me that doesn't describe our situation today. Thou shalt build a house, and thou shalt not dwell therein because the divorce courts will take it from you. Thou shalt plant a vineyard, and shalt not gather the grapes thereof. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, 
and I shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long. Race mixing. And there shall be no might in thine hand. Your children will be race mixers, and there shall be nothing that you can do about it. That's our exact situation today. 41. Thou shalt get sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. 43. The stranger that is within thee shall get up high above thee, and thou shalt come down very low. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. And they shall be upon thee for a sign and a wonder, and upon thy seed forever, because thou servest not Yahweh thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which Yahweh shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he has destroyed thee. It is clear from Deuteronomy that when we are besieged by the so-called other races, that is for our punishment. It is for our chastisement. And it is not because those other people have any blessing from Yahweh or any great accomplishment of their own. The only reason why they are successful is because we are being punished. Yahweh has elevated them above us for our hurt because we forsook him and his ways. When you see Negroes and Jews in limousines and mansions, you'll know that it's to, for our punishment. How can anyone imagine that this, their success at our expense, can possibly be for good? So when we read and the next chapter I'm going, the next verse I'm going to read is Jeremiah 31, 27 through 31. We must understand that Yahweh knew all along that this, our apostasy and subsequent punishment, was indeed going to happen. Jeremiah 31, from verse 27. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man, that's Adam, and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass, that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down, and to destroy and to afflict, that's what's going on right now in our lives, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, says Yahweh. In those days they shall say no more, Fathers have eaten a sour, a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eats the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Again, Yahweh, being God, certainly foresaw the apostasy which would befall our race in the end days. And there are several warnings concerning that apostasy in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yet those who embrace these beasts which we are being sown with, are they not those who are eating the sour grapes? In my paper available on Christogenia, 
Immigration problem in biblical prophecy, I describe the sour grapes of Jeremiah chapter 31. They have to be described from the Bible itself. To understand what they are, we must turn to Deuteronomy 32.32, which is speaking about the enemies of ancient Israel. And I'll quote, For their, great, their vine is the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. There he is, sour grapes. Now we know that Canaan was cursed, and that the Canaanites were mixed together with the Rephaim and the Kenites and several other races, which have no patriarch in Genesis chapter 10. Therefore, we really can't identify them. These people had their descendants. These were the people of Sodom. These were the people of Gomorrah. They were race-mixing. They were committing other types of fornication, such as homosexuality. These people have their descendants among not only the Jews of today, but all of the Arab peoples, all the way into India, southern Russia, northern Africa, and parts of eastern and southern Europe. From Spain and North Africa, they made their way into the Caribbean and Mexico. They also worked their way along the Arab trade routes along the entire Pacific Rim. These beasts, which the houses of Israel are sown with, are a test from Yahweh. If we embrace them, we eat sour grapes. Our children or our grandchildren are bastards. Whenever you see a bastard in the streets or avenues of your town, you must know that such is an indication of the failure of one of your brethren who has already been tested in this manner and who has eaten the sour grapes. That's where bastards come from. Bastards come from our sin. The sowing of the houses of Israel with the seed of beast must occur just before the culmination of the new covenant, which is mentioned next and which I've already read from Jeremiah 31.31. All of this can only describe the very flood of the white nations by the aliens which we see quite clearly happening around us in the world today. For that reason, after this warning, we see a promise to Israel in the later verses of Jeremiah 31, that Israel shall always be a nation, not a church, and surely not a mixed-race, confused empire. This goes hand-in-hand hand with the promise in Daniel 7 that the kingdom shall not be given to another people. And I'm going to read those later verses of Jeremiah from 31 again through verse 40. Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, says Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them. Anybody who thinks we're still under the Great Commission is a fool. All of our people have long ago had the gospel and known Yahweh and known Christ, even if they don't know him by the names that, and, and the, the epithets that we generally use in Israel identity. They still know who their God is, and they still know who their Christ is, or they've had that opportunity to know. 
And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they all shall know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is only talking about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Thus says Yahweh, which gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, the sun and the moon have to disappear in order for the children of Israel to stop being a nation. Thus says Yahweh, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says Yahweh. Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that the city shall be built to Yahweh from the tower of Hananiel to the gate of the corner, and the measuring line shall yet go forth against it upon the hill Gareb, and shall compass about to Goath, and the whole valley of the dead bodies, and of the ashes, and all the fields under the brook of Kidron, under the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy under Yahweh. It shall not be plucked up, nor thrown down any more. It's the children of Israel at the return of Yahweh, and the culmination of the new covenant, are given a collective forgiveness, this promise to forgive and remove their iniquity, and remember their sin no more, it doesn't exclude any Israelite. It doesn't give us license to sin. This does not exclude any Israelite who are dead bodies, who are the ashes. We see a whole valley of dead bodies depicted in this prophecy. Rather than imagine that we should reward these beasts among us, these non-Israelite, non-Adamic people who are an obvious scourge to us and who are here to punish us, they're here from the license of God to punish us. We should instead heed this warning in Ecclesiasticus 12.5. Do well to him that is lowly, but give not to the ungodly. Hold back thy bread and give it not unto him, lest he overmaster thee thereby. If we give to the ungodly, he will use that to rule over us. Or else thou shalt receive twice as much evil for all. Do you want to give to the ungodly? You're going to receive twice as much evil in replace for it. Think about that in the context of the modern welfare and the affirmative action systems we have set up in the Christian, in the Christian nations, which reward all of the beasts that have made their way into our lands. And here is a similar warning from Proverbs 4, verses 14 to 19. Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in a way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away, for they sleep not except they have done mischief. I mean, this doesn't describe most of the denizens of our major cities. And their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness they know not at what they stumble. In the passage above from Jeremiah 31.40, we see another promise, that this whole valley of dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields unto the brook of Kidron, 
And unto the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy unto Yahweh. It shall not be plucked up nor thrown down any more forever. So we have a field or a, an entire valley of buried bodies that serves as a memorial. Therefore, how shall we preach that these beasts who have encompassed us and who devour our nation presently, how shall we preach that they are going to be rewarded in any way? Think about this. Did Yahweh not destroy Assyria? Did Yahweh not destroy ancient Babylon because they exalted themselves against the children of Israel, even though it was His will that they did so? And they were white Adamic people. Yes, Yahweh destroyed them for that reason, and we're told that several times explicitly in the prophets. So what more will he do to beasts? In order to further understand the fate of the beasts, we must see a corresponding prophecy at Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. I'm going to read these chapters almost in their entirety. 38.1 And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against God, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now understand that these people were originally Adamic people, right? And I will turn thee back, and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togarma of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Be thou prepared, and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days shalt thou be visited. In the later years... Thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. This can only describe this nation. It can't describe any other nation. Verse 9. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. This has to be a parallel. This must be a parallel to the seed of beasts of Jeremiah 31. Thus saith Yahweh God, It shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, I will go up to them that are at rest, that dwell safely all of them, dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil, and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. That's what's happening to America today. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, 
to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus says Yahweh God, In that day when my people Israel dwell safely, shalt thou not know it. And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army, and thou shalt come against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the later days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me. Now, now that word heathen can also be nations. When I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. The, the underlying thread of Ezekiel 38 is that Yahweh will be sanctified in Gog when all of these people are destroyed. And we will see that in Ezekiel 39. In that day when my people Israel dwell safely, shalt thou not know it, and thou shalt come from my place out of the north parts. I'm sorry, I read this already. And many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army, and thou shalt come against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. Now this is military, um, a, a picture of military action, and that might be true someday. We can't discount it entirely, but I would say that most of those people are already here. They are already covering our land like a cloud. And thou shalt come up against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the later days. And I will bring thee against my land that the nations may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O God, before their eyes. Now thus says Yahweh God, Yahweh God, Art thou he whom I have spoken of in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in many... In those days, many years, that I would bring thee against them. I would think that this is the same, the, a parallel prophecy where, where um, Yahweh puts a hook in the jaw of Leviathan, which we see in the book of, in the book of Isaiah. Verse 18. And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, says Yahweh God, that my fury shall come up in my face, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground and I will call for a sword against him. I will call for a sword against him, meaning Gog and all of the people with him. Throughout all my mountains, says Yahweh God, every man's sword shall be against his brother, and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands. Every man's sword, meaning every one of the company of Gog, they will slay each other. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him in overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. Yahweh will be magnified, and Israel shall be cleansed when Yahweh himself destroys all of our enemies among us. These are the goat nations. These nations were at one time Adamic, but now 
They are nearly all mixed. They are all called here by their original Adamic names, their Genesis 10 names, only so that we can understand who they are. Large numbers of these people are already here. And even Eli James has identified Gog as the Ashkenazi Jew. While I believe that it is a little more complex of an issue than that, it is accurate enough. It's fully evident in Ezekiel that like the valley of dead bodies in Jeremiah chapter 31, that all of our enemies will be destroyed here. There will be no train tickets back to Mexico or back to the land of Canaan. Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 1. Therefore, thou son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee, of thee, and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and bring thee upon the mountains of Israel, and I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand, and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand, and thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and the people that are with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, says Yahweh. And I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, or coastlands, and they shall know that I am Yahweh, so will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the nations, not necessarily the heathen, shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith Yahweh God. This is the day whereof I have spoken, and they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth, and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, and the bows and the arrows and the handstaves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years, so that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any out of the forest, for they shall burn the weapons with fire. They shall spoil those that spoiled them, and rob those that robbed them, says Yahweh God. And it shall come to pass in that day, that I will give unto Gog a place there of graves in Israel. The valley, we see the same valley, the picture of a valley, of the passengers on the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers in it, and there they shall bury Gog and all his multitude, and they shall call it the valley of Hamangog, and seven months shall the house of Israel be burying them, that they may cleanse the land. Eli James tells us that on the, upon the return of Christ, we will give all of the aliens train tickets home. This is totally contrary to Scripture. Eli abuses Isaiah chapter 13 in order to make his point, but does that chapter nullify these chapters from Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Isaiah 13 tells us that while certain people return to their own nations, it is not at all talking about beasts, and here, and, and there are also many people in Isaiah 13 who are also to be slain in punishment, and Eli ignores that. Eli is taking one verse out of context and twisting it into a pretzel. Now I will read the rest of Ezekiel chapter 39. Yeah, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown. 
day that I shall be glorified, says Yahweh. And they shall sever out men of continual employment passing through the land to bury with the passengers those that remain upon the face of the earth to cleanse it. After the end of seven months shall they search, and the passengers that pass through the land, when any seeth a man's bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the buriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. And also the name of the city shall be Hamona, and they shall cleanse the land. And now, son of man, thus saith Yahweh God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice, that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty, and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, of bullocks, all of them fatlings of Bashan. And ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken, of my sacrifice which I have sacrificed for you. Thus shall ye be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men, with all men of war, saith Yahweh God. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am Yahweh their God from that day forward. And the nation shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore I hid my face from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword, according to their uncleanness, and according to their transgressions, have I done unto them, and hid my face from them. So we see that we were flooded by aliens, because of our own sin and our own punishment. Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, Now I will bring again the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name. After that they have borne their shame, and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me, when they shall dwell safely in their land, and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people, and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the nations. But I have gathered them into their own land, and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, says Yahweh God. Now we see that it will take us seven months to bury the bodies of the invaders once Yahweh visits upon them. Much of the language of Ezekiel 39 is similar to that of Revelation 19, which we will read next. First I want to say that in Ezekiel 39 I have read where the word heathen often appears, I have read nations, because that is the literal meaning of the word, and the King James Version of the Bible didn't necessarily translate it correctly when they translated it heathen. We are told by Yahshua Christ that at the resurrection, the Assyrians will be there, the men of Nineveh. Sabians will be there, the queen of the south. Those people are Adamic people. They are the nations that would be blessed in Abraham's seed. The beasts will not be blessed in Abraham's seed. They are beasts. Revelation 19.1, Revelation chapter 19, the language is very, very similar to Ezekiel chapter 39.
And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto Yahweh our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. Only Israel can commit fornication on Yahweh. And has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they say, Hallelujah, and her smoke rises, rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on a throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye to fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. It is the voice of many waters, and it is the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for Yahweh God omnipotent reigns. Let us be sad, glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. This reflects the real story of the Bible, the acceptance by Israel of the salvation of Yahweh. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Yahshua, worship God, for the testimony of Yahshua is the spirit of prophecy. Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as flame of fire, and on his head there were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of Yahweh. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves under the supper of the great God. Now remember the language of Ezekiel chapter 39 that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men both free and bond both great and small and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army so like in Ezekiel 39 we see that the wedding feast of the lamb is the destruction of all the enemies of God the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which he, which, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. Those that received the mark of the beast, and those that worshipped his image, are those in Jeremiah 31 who eat the sour grapes, the grapes of race mixing. These both were cast alive into a lake of burning fire with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword. The remnant, the remainder of those who, who fought against the children of Israel, 
are slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. That's the wedding supper of the Lamb. It represents the absolute destruction of all of the enemies of God. That's the valley of bodies in Jeremiah 31. That's the valley of bodies in Ezekiel chapter 39. Revelations 20:14 and 15. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. But a lake of fire is not a cleansing lake. As, as Eli quotes Wesley Swift, and Wesley Swift was simply wrong about that. He tried to say that the lake of fire is the cleansing effulgence of Yahweh. Yeah, right. Well, when things are cleansed, everything that offends is gone. You can't take a bastard and clean him. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it says that that sin cannot be washed off, ever. You cannot clean a bastard. You cannot clean a half-breed. You cannot clean a beast. An unclean beast certainly can never be clean. Clean beasts are listed in Leviticus. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, this can be argued, but I believe that the book of life... If Yahshua Christ is the word of life, then the book of life has to be the gospel. The gospels that we have have to be the book of life, a reflection of the word of life. He came only unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If he didn't come from you, for you, and he is the word of life, then you can't be written in the book of life unless you're one of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And if you're not, in this age... You go into the lake of fire. That's just the way it is. Along with death and hell. This is the second death. Revelation 21, 1-12. The promise of the next age. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. The sea, the sea of peoples, represents the mass of other races of the world. Throughout prophecy. That's the Leviathan that's in the sea is not talking about a sea monster back there in Isaiah. It's talking about the Canaanite Jew among the mass of the world's peoples. And I saw John and I John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold the tabernacle of God is with men, and he dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them. And be their God. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Every bastard has to fall into the category of the abominable. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. If you're not from one of those tribes, you're not getting through one of those gates. Revelations 22, 1-4, And he showed me a pure river of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. We have a picture of this tree of life and this river of life. The tree has twelve fruits, and I'm sure that there's one fruit for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We see the words of Christ in Luke chapter 11. And we see the first promise of restoration is in Genesis chapter 3 verse 23. And the other Adamic nations will surely be in the resurrection. There is no doubt. Remember that in, in the epistles of Peter, Peter said that Christ descended into um into Hades and, and preached the gospel to the souls of the dead who had died before the flood. None of them were Israel. They were Adamites. They were all Adamic. They were all white. And they will also be with us in the resurrection. Two parables agree with these prophecies that all of the non-Israelite people in the world today are going to be destroyed. All of the non-Israelite people who have flooded in flooded into white nations as we have just seen in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel chapter 39 and in Revelation chapter 19 they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed by Yahweh himself. That's what the scripture says. The gospel according to Eli James says they're going to be given plane tickets to go home. That is a lie. Two parables that agree with these prophecies the first one is Matthew 13. Everybody here knows it. He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned, in the fire, so shall it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. What offends? Anything that offends has to be a transgression of God's law. The first law in the Bible is the law of kind after kind. If something violates the law of kind after kind, it has to go into that category of all things that offend. And them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's two categories. There's wheat. Wheat came from God. 
There's tares. Tares came from the devil. There's no third category. There's no corn here. There's no oats, no rye. There's wheat and there's tares. The wheat is preserved. The tares are destroyed. There's only two races on this planet. Adamites and non-Adamites. Matthew 25. And if you're mixed, you're non-Adamite. That's just the way it is. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Everybody loves to take this verse, and Eli did it recently, and make it seem as though your judgment depends on your behavior, whether you're a sheep or a goat. That is a sleight of hand deception. And I'm going to read this and prove that. And the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Now this is talking about the same thing that Ezekiel 38 and 39 spoke about. This is talking about the same thing that Jeremiah 31 spoke about. This is talking about the same thing that Revelation chapter 19 spoke about. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, and shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them from one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now, how does a shepherd divide a sheep from goats? You could look at sheep, and you could look at goats, and you could tell them apart at first glance. That's how a shepherd divides sheep from goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. If you look like a sheep, you go to the right. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came into me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when we saw thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink, when we saw a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee, or when we saw thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee, and the king shall answer and say to them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of, and this is important, these my brethren who have done it to me. He's saying, if you have done any of these things to these my brethren, you have done it to me. You can't go into the Congo and take care of um, Hutus and Tutsis and imagine yourself to be taking care of these my brethren because Yahshua Christ came of the seed of Abraham, and these my brethren can only refer to the children of Israel. It can't refer to anybody else. Period. If the children of Israel have taken care of their own kin, they inherit the kingdom of God. Love thy brother is the primary commandment of the New Testament. And you can't love your brother without loving your God first. And the king shall answer and say to them, Unto them, verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. And shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a straight reference back to the original rebellion, from which, I believe, came all the mixed and other races. For I was hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was first 
thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto you? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not unto one of the least of these, meaning his brethren, who did it not to me. When have the other races ever taken care of Israelites? Yes, there's an occasional exception. But for the most part, the white nations of history have built the hospitals, have built the orphanages, have built the social programs, the churches, and, and everything, the schools, and everything that goes with our taking care of each other. The non-white races have never done those things. They've moved into our schools. They've moved into our hospitals. They've moved into our orphanages. But they've never built any of those things. They wouldn't have any of those things if it weren't for our stupidity, if it weren't for the, the, the colonial period and, and the um, going overseas of our people as missionaries or in foreign aid to build these things in their nations. They wouldn't have them. There wouldn't be a hospital in Africa if it were left to the black races to build one. There wouldn't be one. So not only do they ever take care of us, but they've never taken care of each other. You see that none of the tares are placed with wheat, and none of the wheat are placed with the tares. We see that none of the goats are invited to join the sheep, and we see that none of the sheep have an op uh, are scolded and sent off with the goats. The fate of the goat nations is the same as that of the enemies of Yahweh who invade the lands of the people of Israel. Their fate is the lake of fire where hell and death also inhabit. Hebrews 12.8 But if you be without chastisement, whereof all Israelites are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Just like sheep and goats. You could be a son or you could be a bastard. There's no third choice. And if you're a bastard, there's no train ride home at the end of the age because you fall into the category of all things which offend. Again, and I went over this last week, 1 John verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, believe not at every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, that word of is the preposition ek. And ek means source or origin. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yahshua Christ is coming to flesh is ek of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Yahshua Christ is coming to flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, the Jews, Canaanites... Whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now it is already in the world, you are of God, little children, meaning ek, or source or origin is of God. You have been born from above, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. That word ek again, meaning that their source or origin is in this society. It is not with God. Therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. 
we are of God, he that knows God hears us, and he that is not of God hears us not. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There are people here, there are many, the, the vast majority of people here in this world, today, on this planet, are not of God. They were created in the world by the errors of men or angels. They have no place in the world to come. Luke 9.26 For whoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Eli James, that's your warning. You're ashamed of the words of God and you're in deep trouble. Okay, that's it. That, that's all I have for this presentation. I think that's probably enough. I'd be glad to take any questions. I hope that there are people that have something to say. Perhaps I missed something. I have, um, I only threw this together on a fly. So, so I, it's, it's very possible that I probably did miss a few things. And it would be nice to hear them or, or anything else. Well, I came in a little late, but it sounded pretty good from what I heard. Well, well, basically, there's two races of people. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. And, and if you're a goat, you're going into the lake of fire, and there's no third choice. There's no third category. Daniel, um, welcome to Christagenia, and all my programs are available at Christagenia.org. Usually the night of the program. Bill, I'm going to play devil's advocate with you and give you a hypothetical question. Sure, right. that's what I'm here for. All right, so where are the seeds say, at a, at a, 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 pure, a purity level where the seeds of Yahweh and Jews at a pure level are the seeds of Satan. What is to say that, now I'm, I'm just strictly playing devil's advocate, I'm not going to Eli on you here, <laughs> but I'm just playing devil's advocate. Wouldn't, say, if you had a 50-50 a 50% Jew, 50% Israelite, wouldn't Yahweh's seed be stronger to overcome the individual spirit? No, because each each, sper each cell is corrupt. Each cell is corrupt. On a strategic level, I'm thinking here, on Yahweh's behalf, it would seem like a, uh, like a very... Easily defeated enemy. If all you had to do is is, is spring, you know, a very small percentage of poison seed onto it and ruin his. Well, well it be, makes a broken cistern. I, I have a paper on Christogenia called "Broken Cisterns" that you really have to check out. Actually, it's two papers. Okay. Yeah. No problem. I, like I said, I was just playing devil's advocate. I had well, well, right. But yeah, you know, the genetic, Paul tells us in in one Corinthians that we're we're born a physical seed and raised a spiritual seed, and that tells me that the spirit that we have, <clears throat> and and that just about everybody in this room displays, as far as I know, this that that spirit that comes from our genes. We're able to understand these things and act on them because we have that spirit in our genetics. And, and that enables us to do that. And if we didn't have that spirit in our genetics, then we wouldn't be able to understand these things and to act on them. Well, thanks for the link, John, there. Check that out. Well, the, uh, it's, it, it's obvious that well, the universalist uh, attitude or approach is uh, infusing fear, uh, fear in, in our race to even 
even just openly talk about these things. Well, it's the message of the gospel. It's the meaning of the parable in the wheat of the wheat and the tares. It's the meaning of the parable of the sheep and the goats. It, it's the meaning of so many passages in Scripture that if we are going to push those passages under a rug and pretend that they don't exist and pretend that we could have peace with the enemies of our God, well, well then we're kidding ourselves and, and we're basically spitting in the face of our God. That's what we're doing. Yeah, well, it makes sense that the love of the love of the world, the world, the world's the worldly system or universalism uh, is is the very injection of fear that that. Oh, one can't serve God and Mammon, and a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Oh yeah, yeah, and well, the first the first thing to to, to recognize is that that un that instability, that double-mindedness, and uh, you know the love of the love of uh, the values of this corrupt society and uh you just you know turn your back on it completely um and the almighty can't isn't going to sympathize with uh stupidity and in, in uh pettiness and, and i mean in the sense of uh being double-minded uh his, his values are eternal not temporal but well absolutely and and um <clears throat> Well, we can't soft-pedal the gospel. We can't soft-pedal the message to keep people happy because we're going to be caught in the lies. And then we destroy the, we destroy the message. Isn't that what uh, the Catholic Church did? <laughs> it was bad. Yeah, right, Mike. That's exactly what the Catholic Church did. Or the Mormons in the 70s when they said, all right, we'll let Negroes come in. Exactly. And how many little blonde girls are, are, are married to them now? I don't know. I haven't been to Utah lately, but... What do you think, Bill? How long before they before they break the Amish back? Well, yeah, you know something. The Amish, I think, are safe. You know why? Because you'll never see a nigger do without his boombox. <laughs> or have to actually work on a farm, huh? <laughs> or or actually create something. But well, right. I think just that, just the fact that they eschew technology probably keeps them fairly safe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, de it depends what level of Amish they are, too, because I was watching a documentary, and this guy uh, was getting ready to go on his rumspring, and he had a um, he had a, a big old you know, subwoofer box in his horse and carriage and a battery hooked up with a deck. He, he wasn't playing rap, thankfully, but, uh, yeah, he was like, oh, wow. I don't know if I'm ready to go on my rumspring, but I'm starting to listen to music, and as long as I could do that, I guess I'll stay here on the farm with the family. But one of the things that's good about them is that when they when they they let their kids I don't know not necessarily let but it's kind of the unwritten rule to let them go do this rebellious rumspringer thing, and um, if they try to come back and bring somebody outside of the community in, they're basically kicked out themselves. You know they can't bring anybody in. Uh, you know that's outside of their group, which is good because that means that there's no room for for uh, people to be from outside lineage. Right, LG, the Amish believe in hard work, and no nigger wants any part of that. No, no hip hop, no rap, and I got to work. <laughs> but well, yeah, I think that's that's kept them them um, fairly secluded. Just there is chewing, there is chewing of technology, and and um, maintaining their their old fashioned seventeenth century ways has probably actually helped them. And they've, they, they're probably the closest to anybody to what true Christianity should be, and they don't even know it.
because of the way they, they operate their assemblies, the community rules, they, they don't um, impose bishops and, and popes on each other. That the, the community makes its own decisions, and, and everything is done through their church, and they help each other. But when one family is down and out, the other families pitch in and, and pick it up, and, and that's the way it should be. And they, have, and they have an excellent work ethic. They have a natural affection for men and women and women towards men. <laughs> yeah, and the women follow suit in a patriarchal family unit as well. Right. And, and that's, that, well, that's important in keeping the society together. That's the glue that, that holds the society together. And, and um, it's torn down in this country. It, it's the Jews have torn it down. The Frankfurt School, the, the um, all, all of the psycho babble that came out in the 60s, which most of it came out because of the Frankfurt School, and, and the psycho babble against um, authoritarian males and, and strong fathers and strong family units has basically, and, and people buying into that Jewish garbage has basically destroyed the fabric of our society. Well, and if you look, too, you take this at a deeper level. I was analyzing this the other day. Um, oh, what was the... Okay, the Catholic, I'll bring up the Catholic Church in this as well. Everything the Jew has used all the way back till Eve has been a very matriarchal, feminist, uh, female piggybacking that they've done. Like take, for instance, when they took over Russia, they called it the motherland. Hitler called Germany the fatherland. Uh, they... they in, they incite women in this society to be the rulers of the household. That men are the dumb, you know, workhorses that they're supposed to rule over. Uh, you know, the homosexuality, the feminism. Uh, you know, even a Catholic Church. You know, you see the way that they. Well, who do they preach to more all the time? Mother Mary and Mother Teresa. When you look at these uh, humanists and these so-called environmentalist Jewish groups, what are they always say? Mother Earth, not Father Yahweh. Mother Earth. So everything that. They've done, you know, all the way back to the beginning story of Eve, they've played off the woman to use against the patriarchal man, the king in society. Well, well, right, absolutely. And even like you said in the Catholic Church, the early Catholic Church was not like that. And and I haven't done the study yet to see when it, it changed towards that Mary worship. But, but the early Catholics, I, I mean, I've read up through the 7th century and I haven't seen that in Bede. You know, that Mary worship or, or in any of the other early Christian writers that, that could be considered Catholic or proto-Catholic. So, so that's probably a change. I, I would say that came maybe since the um, maybe since the Reformation. And I don't know. I might be wrong about that. But I don't think the Mary worship was that strong before the Reformation or, or before the last few hundred years. I, I'd like to. I, I should probably investigate that. Well, the Protestants didn't seem to follow. I mean, if it was... During the time of Martin Luther, it didn't seem like any of the Protestant religions picked up that that uh, so-called matriarchal following like the Catholic Church. Did. Well, no, they didn't, but that's why I think it probably happened after that time. Protestants rejected all of the Catholic idolatry, worshiping the saints, the statues, the all, all of the, the trappings of old paganism, which is basically where it all comes from. Basically, yeah, the, the, uh, well, sorry, Paul. Uh, no, I was just going to say, it's basically the old Roman paganism with, with new um, Christian-sounding names. Yeah, I'm pushing all, pushing all this propaganda for thousands of years. and uh, It's like um, the, uh, the, beer, the beer pushers, the alcohol pushers, they, 
in uh, Bush Gardens, or I mean uh, Bush SeaWorld, they have a, at the Behemoth show, a black and white killer whale, and they have this show, and they they show a father penguin sitting over an egg, and then they 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 zoom out to outer space, and it says father father penguin, and then they zoom out and show the big huge Earth, and says Mother Earth, and you know like that's real inspiring. They really they really push it though, really big time. This matriarchal. Uh, Mamsy, Pamsy, and it, it degrades it degrades a woman because they're, you know, it's kind of like they want to bring back the goddess tradition like the Gnostics exemplify and propagate. Well, that's what they've been trying to do for a 100 years now. That's what they've tried to do through Hollywood. There's no doubt that they've purposely separated women from their families so, they, so that they can exploit them for sexual purposes. And that's part of the um, the protocols of Zion and the Communist Manifesto. It is the, um, the the Jewish goal of separating our women from our families. Yeah, the whole Hollywood scene is is just is placated with uh, alternative lifestyle, queer faggot producers, directors, and uh, pandering, always just glorifying Jews. It's just insane. So. Can we turn one's back on all of that? Yes, I say yes. Um, Bill, how you doing? Hello, Brian. You missed the whole. Yeah, you missed the whole in the first hour, right? All right. Sorry, well, I'm a, a latecomer today. But speaking of women's lib and all that, I was watching a movie today. Got up pretty early, around 6 a.m., and had nothing much to do in the morning. So I watched Taxi Driver. Have you seen Taxi Driver with Robert De Niro? No, I never saw the movie. I, I wouldn't watch right. that trash. Well. It's got an okay message. I mean, there's there's a lot of garbage in it, but he's talking to Jodie Foster, and she's playing a 12-and-a-half-year-old child prostitute, and she talks about women's liberation because he's trying to tell her she thinks that he's a John and is interested in her, and he's telling her, you need to get out of this lifestyle. You, you don't want to be here. You need to be at home with your parents. What are you doing hanging around that pimp? using you to get money and you're nothing to him except a, a piece of you know what and she's she goes on and on about women's liberation and he says you're you're 12 years old you're not a woman you, you're a kid go home and be with your parents and in the end he kills the pimp he kills the um the guard at the brothel and then he kills a mobster client that was in with one of the kids and i thought it, it was an interesting movie coming out of hollywood but was it supposed to convince us that jews have morals or something oh and the guy that played the pimp he was harvey keitel that was the pimp. Okay. And he, he was, um, his parents are Romanian Jews, so it's rather fitting that in a movie we have a Romanian Jew playing a pimp who's pimping out 12-year-old white girls in New York. I just thought it was an, it was an odd movie because they were kind of telling on themselves in a way. You must have missed the message somewhere in there to poison. Yeah, I'm sure there has to be poison somewhere. Well, they portray the guy as maladjusted. He, he doesn't have a girlfriend. He lives alone. Basically, a a loser who spends his time in porn theaters, but then he sees this child prostitute and he decides that he needs to help her and get her out of that lifestyle. Basically, a maladjusted marine who came back from Vietnam and can't fit in with society. So in a way, they're they're kind of pooping on our veterans, and they also portray him as a racist too. So, so they're taking a a person that's expressing a moral stance and they're making him look like a cretin, right? That that's, yeah. there's your poison right there. Oh, that mean man went and shot that nice pimp. And <laughs> Although in the end, the parents are thanking him for saving their daughter, and they said that they'd 
they were worried sick about her since she'd run away from home, and they'll, they'll never give her reason to run away again, and they, they wish him well, and they, they hope he gets out of the hospital soon because he got shot in the neck in the process of attacking the brothel. For whatever reason, he was not charged. I'm guessing if somebody really did that in New York, the police would... Because it was Hollywood. You, you killed that mobster. He was a nice, innocent man, and you gunned him down. We're charging you, you killer. Okay. It was a Martin Scorsese oh. film. I don't know about that guy. I believe in um, mental hygiene, so I'll probably never watch Taxi Driver, right? The real topic tonight was whether or not the um, the beast the beast could be saved, right? That that was the real topic tonight, basically. How can the beast be saved? Well, that was my point. Why would we want the beast to be saved? Right. Maybe because we have an agenda. Evangelicals, I've heard, take it to the point where they talk about anybody can get redemption. And, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, if he confessed Jesus as his Savior an instant before his death, he's in heaven with the angels. Well, does that mean can Lucifer be saved and redeemed if he confesses Jesus? In fact, Lucifer, Satan, is 100% certain that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows it for a fact. He knows every word of the Bible, and he tried to tempt Jesus because he knows that he is the Son of God. I don't believe there's salvation for the devil devil were worthy of redemption, he wouldn't have risen up against Yahweh to begin with. Well, well, there's certainly no salvation for any bastard or any of the goat nations, right? How could there be? But which, was the, told, sorry, go but which was the theme tonight? I mean, we're told the division is sheep and goats, not sheep, and then goats, and then we subdivide it with bad goats and good goats. Right. Exactly. Yeah, well, you're a goat, you're a goat, but your words were okay, so we're, we're going to give you a pass. That's not how it works. The important point Bill uh, mentioned also is that how a sheep shepherd separates the sheep from the goats looks at their face. <laughs> so he doesn't he doesn't spiritualize the sheep and the goats mm-hmm. together and somehow separate them due to their spirituality. But well, right, he doesn't separate them as God would separate bad people from good people, he separates them as a shepherd would separate sheep from goats, which has to be based on solely on appearance. We're told that they cannot blush, and they'll fall amongst those who fall at the time that Yahweh shall visit them, and they shall be cast down. You know, I mean, the whole verse in Jeremiah reads, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith Yahweh. And some people may say, oh, well, the mulattoes, they didn't commit abomination. Their parents did, and certainly that's so. But the existence of the hybrid is still an offense. Their existence is abomination. Oh, well, absolutely. And, and, you know, Christ said he's going to remove all things that are an abomination, and every bastard fits into that category. He didn't say he's going to remove them to Madagascar or remove them back to Somalia. Or give them train tickets back to Hong Kong. Unless being thrown into the furnace is an analogy for going back to Hong Kong, going back to Saudi Arabia. I mean, I know it is pretty hot in Saudi Arabia, but (laughs) I think furnace means furnace. Absolutely. Lake of fire is the... Well, well, if hell and death... Yeah, you know, Swift tried to say that the Lake of Fire was a cleansing lake of the effulgent. Well, if the beast and the false prophet are in this fire, what, do they come out nice? So now we have a nice false prophet? Cut out, Bill. Did you hit the mute button? Uh, well, exactly. It makes no sense at all. If if hell and death and the beast and the false prophet all go into the Lake of Fire, how how do hell and death come out clean? It, it makes no sense. Right. And neither do the goats. Either to the goats, the tares, the bastards, or anything else. Goats Satan doesn't go into the lake of fire for 
a couple centuries and then come out and guys and say, um, all, all that business about your revolution and heaven, that's water under the bridge. Why don't you come back up here and, um, you know, we'll, we'll hang out and chill. I don't think it works that way. Well, somebody else here has to have something else to say. It, it can't be all pro-think and, and sword brethren and, and me, that's for sure. Well, well, in Bruce, no, nothing, no questions, no no um, comments, no um, good night, Cheryl. No, nothing. Well, hello, John. Hey, good evening. <laughs> Bill, um, I just, uh, you know, quickly, I, I want to give you thoughts on something. I was listening to Pastor Dan earlier this evening, and he um, he was talking about the parable of the king and the wedding feast and all, and how the uh, one of the guests were not wearing uh, proper attire. Now, I know how you think on that. Uh, he... he l- his description of that was that the person was uh, not, um, let's say, he was dirty or not clean enough to be there. He well, that's, that's just ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. Because the servants went out and they just grabbed, say, 100 people off the street. Just grab 100 people off the street. None of them, none of them left their house that day figuring they were going to a wedding supper. Not one of them. They were all absolutely surprised. They were all... It, it, it was like you're walking down the street on your way home from work or on your way home from a farm or, or whatever. You just shovel cow manure all day. And, and some guy grabs you and says, hey, come on, come on, right now, we got to go. You got to go to his wedding dinner. You go. And, and you got manure all over your jeans and you got your boots on and, and your hands are dirty and you're at the, we- the wedding dinner. We've already been told that to eat with unwashed hands does not make you unclean. Well, this guy did not have a wedding garment on. Well, well, right, but but none of these people left their house that day planning on going to a wedding. They were all accosted in the street as they were. But a wedding garment can only well, be you know, one they, thing. They gave them time to go home and, uh, like, uh, get... No, that's not what it says. It says they were brought in right off the street. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. And they went out onto the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. Thanks, Brian. Now I don't have to dig the text out. <laughs> both bad and good? I mean, um, yes. what, is, what would that mean? This is um, Matthew chapter 23, I think. 22. Or, or chapter 21. 22, Bill. Yeah, I got it. I see you lied in the forum uh, under his alias. So, yes, he was black, he says. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden, those that were already invited to the wedding, and they would not come. That means the Judeans in Judea, right? Because they should have been expecting the arrival of the Messiah, right? Again he sent forth for other servants, saying, Tell them which were bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. In, in other words, none of them cared. And, and the remnant took the remainder, took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. So some of them even killed the servants, right? But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he went forth, sent his armies, and destroyed those murderers. I'm in the wrong parable, ain't I? No, no I'm in the right parable. Destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, 
bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, and it does say both bad and good. That word bad is poneris, and, and it could be bad, annoying, hardship, bad, bad nature or condition. Good is agathis. The words basically mean bad and good. The wedding and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. In other words, he had nothing to say. He had nothing to respond. Now, none of these people expected to go to a wedding. But this one guy has no wedding garment. So I guess everybody in this town walks around with wedding garments, and this one guy just isn't onto it. <laughs> is, that, is that Obama without a teleprompter? Funny. It seems to me that that wedding garment has to be your skin. It has to be. There's no other explanation. You must want to believe that some guy was doing carpentry work wearing his wedding garment, and another guy was at the mill wearing his wedding garment, and the fishers had their wedding garments on. Now, actually, and, and, and this is even Patricia, when I did my parables according to, you know, parables, the racial message of the parables, it was a program I did last year. It's, it's on Christogenia, and I, parables, I can't even remember the exact title of it, right? But, um... Patricia made the point that in, in the ancient Roman world, the host used to hand out wedding garments to the guests. And, and I would say that the host did hand out wedding garments to these guests. He handed them out when they were born. Yes. And, and this one character just didn't have it. So, so basically, he couldn't have been born with it. It's an exclusive club. You're either in or you're not. Well, universalism teaches the opposite, that you get it when you die. Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, now how should that be? How, how could that punishment be righteous for a guy that just didn't wear the right clothes? Or wasn't moral enough? No, because all these people were both bad and good. It doesn't say escort him to the 747 and get him a ticket back to Nigeria. So the people that were brought in, I mean, what kind of people are you going to see in the streets, right? You're going to see... Um, Pimps and prostitutes. You're, you're going to see um, pushers and peddlers, and, and then you're going to see the average everyday people that work for a living that are walking around that just happen to be there, right? So, so if you pull in a hundred people, you're going to get some, some people that have led um, lives that that probably could have been better, and you're going to get some normal people in the mix, right? Well, it makes sense when you think about it a little like that. Uh, it's just. Uh I didn't. It didn't sound right when Pastor Dan said it, but uh, it was. I can see his point, but you have to consider all things in this. Well, yeah, I think um, I, I like Dan, but I think he failed miserably. If that's the way he explained the, the parable of the wedding feast. Yeah. All right. Here's another. Here's another one of his, which he failed miserably, and I caught this right away. So this is nothing. You can't. You can't even get around this. He was talking about. Uh, some of the women will have to accept more than share their share them uh, share their man with more than one woman, and I was like, no, that's not what Christ said. Uh, no, it's not, and, and he's um he, he's a polygamist, right? Well, I think he was taking that out of Isaiah chapter four verse one when it says, "In that day, seven women shall lay hold on one man, saying, you know, we shall provide our own clothing and our own food. Simply let us be called by thy name and take away our reproach." Well, right, but that doesn't mean that it, that it's godly, right? Just because it's prophesied to happen. Well, wasn't that prophecy already fulfilled in some way? 
Uh, I don't know of a time when, well, I, I guess you could say during the 30 years war and the immediate aftermath, there were so few men left in northern Italy, Germany, and France, and other nations. The Catholic Church suspended their edicts against polygamy. They allowed many Catholic men in certain villages, you know, they said, okay, if you want to marry five women, go ahead, you can do it. And Martin Luther said that he, he never saw a problem with it, so the Lutherans were doing it anyway, on some level. Martin Luther said that he could not find scripture that forbade a man from having more than one wife. He didn't say it was encouraged or it was the way of things, but he said he would not prohibit it to another man. Catholic Church even issued special dispensations. There were so few men left in many of the German states, northern Italy, Holy Roman Empire. You know, 33 to 35 percent of all Germans dead. Most of those were men. They died in the war, the Thirty Years' War. Maybe that would have been a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, it makes sense. Uh, Bill, do you uh, have any other point in history where that, that was fulfilled? Well, well, no, but this is actually talking about the destruction of, um, the coming destruction of Israel under the Assyrians and, and, and Jeru Ju Judah under the Babylonians. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. So I think it has to be read in that context, that it's not talking right, about our sense. future. It's talking about something that happened 2,700 years ago in a time when, when the nation had fallen into decay and, and the, um, the Assyrians and the Babylonians had destroyed it. You know, it, it, it's kind of strange where when I, I can read Christ's words um, where God created them man, one man, one woman, and uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. So how can they say there's nothing in Scripture that specifically prohibits that? But, well, right, and, and there really isn't. That There really isn't a law, right, that prohibits polygamy. There's no law. There are laws that govern a man's behavior when he, when he decides to have a, a polygamous relationship. Mainly it says that, you know, if you have two wives and you end up the first and loving the second, you can't disinherit the eldest son by the first woman. You can't disinherit your first son in favor of the son by the new woman. Right. There, there are laws that govern a man's um, conduct in a polygamous relationship, but that still doesn't make it right. The godly model is that a man should have one wife, and Christ says male and female, he made them. That's the godly model. And that's the model that we should all strive to, um, to, to live by, to fulfill. And, but if you look at the patriarchs, Abraham had one wife, Sarah. She was barren. So Sarah gave him Hagar and said, here, go, go get your seed, get, you know, your, your heir with Hagar. So Abraham acceded to that and had a child with Hagar. Okay? Was that Abraham's willingness to do that? It was actually Sarah's beckoning. After Sarah died, Abraham took a third wife. Didn't take a third wife till after Sarah died. So Abraham was basically a monogamist who only had a relationship with Hagar because Sarah, his wife, was barren. Then we have Isaac. Isaac is a monogamist. He only has one wife, Rebecca, his entire life. Godly model is to have one wife. Now we have Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob only wanted Rachel. 
But Rachel's father screwed him, and he ended up with Leah. Well, he didn't really care for Leah. He really wanted Rachel. But he realized once he went into Leah that she was his wife, and he did not put her away or cry foul. He accepted that as having come from God, and, and he worked seven more years so that he could have Rachel, the wife he really wanted. Now, because of the um, rivalry between Leah and Rachel, Jacob also ended up with both handmaids. Now, now we could all envy Jacob, and, and sometimes... Um, you better be careful what you wish for, because when you get it, it's not going to be as good as it, you thought it would be, right? He'll have four women to team up against him. Right. But really, Jacob only wanted Rachel. And you know Jacob couldn't have been a Jew, because if he were, he'd have said, hey, I worked seven years for one. Why do I got to work seven for the other? I'll meet you. You know, I'm, give me a discount. Two more years, and I get the other one. <laughs> he'd have haggled his uncle down. <laughs> Well, well um, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Proves Jacob was no Jew. Well, well, anyway, yeah, the godly model is one wife. The law and, and, and Yahweh's permissive will allow us to have more than one wife as long as we treat them both well. Now, now if you can afford that, more power to you, but that's not re you're, you're really being a fleshly man and, and pursuing the, the, the desires of the flesh rather than the, the will of God. That's the way I look at it. It's basically putting our own gratification above the good of Yahweh and his kingdom, our pleasure, you know. And that's not, that's not keeping his commandments. <laughs> right. I myself, I do not believe that we should practice polygamy, but um, the, the law doesn't allow me to condemn those who do. Yeah, no, it doesn't, no. And that's my position on it, and it probably will not change. And, and Bob wants the twins. But if he could afford it and, and he could um, make them both happy and keep them that way, that's that's between him and them. It, it's none of my business. Oh, oh, he's just kidding. I don't know. Those TV people that he's, he's always um, fantasizing about. <laughs> TV hoes. TV host or TV hoes? TV hose. <laughs> well, if anybody has anything to say, just right-click on your name and request talk power, and um, I could turn your microphone on. This is an open forum program. You better start doing it on your own wheel, or we're going to start calling names out here to come up to the mic. Yeah, right. I'll just unmute everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you might hear people cooking, though, or going to the bathroom, or who knows what. Well... Who knows, it might work out if we catch somebody talking to their rabbi or something, huh? Hello, Jewel. Hi, Bill. Um, I have a question about the whole many wives things. Um, I don't understand, like, because I'm new to this, you know that. I don't understand um, why anybody would want more than one wife. Shouldn't one wife make them happy? Well, well that's what you would think, right? That's what I would hope. I mean, like, I hope that in my future I will find one man who will love just me also in return. You know, that, that's my hope. Let, let, well, the main let, way... Let me make, let me make the argument. Sorry, if you want to go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I was, let, me, let me make an argument for this because... Well, first I of all, it's, um, it's it's... It's not in the sense that uh, we're here for happiness. I mean, we're here to fulfill what we're here for. And, I mean, ultimately, if the goal, 
I mean, let's face it, we're being outbred by like crazy right now. And so, you know, if if say the option of, of polygamy was entertained, it would certainly assist in in the reproduction methods. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying I advocate it either because I'm not trying to get my ass kicked here in my house, but. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, I don't, I, uh, you know, marriage isn't what the Jews have been selling us on TV, oh, about happy love and exchange Valentine's cards and such like that. You know, marriage is a duty, and, and, and creating more children and lineage is a, is a duty as well. And, um, you know, not that it's a job, and you're supposed, to, you're supposed to be happy in doing those duties, not necessarily happy. You know, the, the idea that the Jews sell you as, as love is not real love. It, it's so phony, it's it's like a $3 bill. But, um so, right, right, right. You know, if I, I a man was to that. take on more than one, you know, if a man was to take on a more wife, it wouldn't. Uh, first of all, one wife is an, is a is enough responsibility in itself for a man. I mean, for a real man to have to have to uh, hold down a wife, especially in this kind of society where they're being hit with poison mines uh, left and right. I mean, it is a toll on me as well, you know. And I got a pretty tight knit family here, but you know people that know me know that it's 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 a lot of work to to hold things together and to keep a strong mind between me and my wife so i mean if if a man was you know in already a shoes where he's trying to do that and then trying to take on multiple wives i mean of course you know the people that are thinking dirty are thinking oh you know hey that might be fun but no it's really not because ultimately they're there you know you'd be there to 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 force multiply yourself and to uh, you know breed multiply. I mean that, that's putting a lot of you know cookies in your plate there. And I just wanted to explain how historically in ancient Israel most polygamous marriages would come about through this this sort of scenario where a man would have a wife and her sister's husband would die and she wanted her sister taken care of. She didn't want her sister just left a widow. So she would say to her husband, you know, you have to help out my sister. You know, you need to marry her, bring her into the household, and you, you can have a, a husband-wife relationship with her, and, and she'll be taken care of, and I'll be happy knowing that my sister is not lonely and that my sister's not a widow or that she's not, you know, going to seek a stranger. Not to mention, of course, the Levite marriage, where if I were to have a brother and he was married to a, a white woman and he died and had no children... I would have to take her as a wife and have a child with her that could be raised in his name to gain his inheritance. The child would have to be raised up in the name of the brother. And it doesn't say only if I'm not married. It says that basically you have to take the, your brother's wife. Although if your brother got, quote, married to a Negro, that's no marriage at all, and you're not required to violate the law to you know, try and give your brother an heir through some Negress. That only applies if your brother was married to a white woman. That is in Leviticus, the... the um, practice of that sort of Levite marriage. All right. Thank you. I don't think, I don't know of any Israelites that ever, you know, would take out an ad and a, you know, that they tack a scroll in the center of the town saying, wanted three women willing to be my polygamous wives. I think that'd be, that'd be pretty hokey if someone did that. We don't really hear about anything like that. So those polygamy dating sites out there, and there are a few, I, I think they're dubious, and that's being generous. Well, thank you, guys, because I, I better understand better. Well, I just wanted to add that um, also some, most of the polygamists who had more than one wives, they were very wealthy men. They weren't just some random local average Joe making 60000 a year. Most uh, polygamists like King David were kings. They were very rich and very wealthy where they can financially take care of many wives. Actually, King David was not a polygamist. Yeah. He, he had, yeah, I'm sorry, he did have concubines. 
Yes, he did. Okay. It, yeah, weren't. I wouldn't call that a polygamist, though. Where really, I'd yeah, right. It, 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 it was a right. it was a worldly practice in in the ancient world, but but they technically under the Hebrew law, if they were virgins before he, they were his concubines, and he was married to every one of them. But he only had he, he had two women that were actually considered a wife. One of them was Saul's daughter. Uh, I think he was married to, or he was betrothed to, and and then it was um, all took her back. I think, and I'm not I don't really remember. But the other one was Uriah the Hittite's wife. No, there was also uh, the the man who uh, mistreated him and his men, and his he got killed, and then he took. His wife as a wife. <clears throat> Uriah. That's who I said, Uriah the Hittite. And no, it wasn't Uriah. It was someone Hittite, else. Mighty warrior, right, Bill? Right. It's been too long since I read oh. Samuel. There's no well, way David, David wouldn't have taken a woman who had been with a racial Hittite. Wasn't Abigail Saul's, Saul's um, daughter? Her name began with an A. Oh, Abigail was not Saul's daughter. Okay. I'm corrected. I, I don't know. I, it's been so long since I read um, Second Samuel. I, it's been too long. Well, Bill, let me just explain about Saul's daughter. It, she um, ridiculed David for uh, dancing in public uh, the way he did. And uh, yeah, right. She despised him. She, yeah. She he put her away practically. He wouldn't sleep with her anymore. Well, you know, moving up to modern day times, I don't know if you guys um, caught up with that. Uh, this is maybe about a year or two or so ago, but the FLDS, which was the fundamentalist Latter-day Saint group that moved from southern Utah down to uh, Texas, and um, these people weren't necessarily wealthy, but they were very disciplined, and they did everything off their own land, and you know they were able to build these huge, I mean, I don't like to call them compounds, because that's what the Jews like to say everybody's building when they're, you know, living outside of the Jew world, but... You know, these people, that you know, they just took some dedication, had everybody work where they were supposed to go. And, um, you know, on their behalf, I, I'm sure you guys heard that the guy was uh, you know, a pedophile and all this stuff. But later on, he's still sitting in prison, of course, but later on they had to admit that, well, he really wasn't a pedophile. No, we really didn't have any charges. The kike judge and the, and the kike operation from CPS were the ones that took these people down because they were living a little too Christian and breeding and not having to pay taxes and, Where was this and located other again? stuff. I mean, uh, this was the FLDS, and they, like I said, they relocated down to Texas, but there was oh, a this was the El Dorado Ranch. Yes, yes, you know, and they they had a lot of good things going for them down there, and like I said, <laughs> don't buy anything the Jew media was trying to sell on these guys because they even had to later retract it in the back articles of papers and such that, well, okay. We really didn't have anything on this guy. Of course, they didn't headline that like they did when they tried to paint this guy with a with a pedophile brush. Some black girl, black woman rather, from Colorado, it turned out, called into CPS claiming she was a 16-year-old girl being raped at the compound, although she had never set foot there. And I'm guessing maybe she tried to make a pass of some Mormon man. He rejected her because most Mormons don't want anything to do with Negroes, and that was, you know, that got the ball rolling. And she said, "Oh, I'm going to show them." Yeah, and these and these weren't like your your uh, mainstream. I mean, it certainly wasn't like the mainstream Mormons because mainstream Mormons abolished polygamy back in the 1800s. But they also weren't like the other polygamous Mormons that are. You know, they have a sect of them also in southern Utah. They're they're mostly about 
using the the Mormon title to be polygamous more in a nefarious way. But this group that moved down to Texas, I mean, these pe- these people basically lived like an Amish lifestyle as polygamists. And um, I mean, they like I said, they had a lot of goodness going for them. They took care of themselves and were able to to uh, you know they had a huge temple and everything set up on their property. Well, it looks like they it's just amazing. Have that, they were doing. You know, I would disagree with. These FLDS types, they kick out a lot of young men so the old men don't have to compete with young men to get additional wives. And Some of these guys had 15, 16, 17 wives, and the leader could reassign the wives to another man if the, if the one guy fell out of favor. You know, So if you're some guy and you've got six wives and a bunch of kids and you fall out of favor, you question him, all of a sudden he can take your wives away and give them to another guy. That's a clear violation of Scripture. Yeah, well... Yeah, but that, that, like no I said, that was more of the Jew media hype. That that was more of the Jew media hype because I remember the three people they interviewed and I looked up to them. It was kind of like what they did is is they wanted to leave the compound and you know they were at the age where where they weren't seeking. You know, it'd be like the Amish when they go do the rum spring and they didn't, they they wanted to disobey you know the the rules of the the compound for lack of better words. And, uh, you know, they said, well, no, if you leave, you're, you know, you're not having nothing to do with this. But, they, you know, they pay these kids to come on there and be like, oh, they didn't like us because we want, they didn't have enough women for us. And it, you know, it, there might, there probably would have been some cases like that, but the Jew media was trying to spin it up. Like, yeah, they were kicking out the young men and it was, it was no, they were going to their rebellious stage trying to leave the area and, and, uh, and bring back dirt or something to the community and, that was what the real deal was with that, for the most part. There's probably some truth in that, though. I mean, like I said, I certainly don't stick up for their doctrine or, or nothing, but, you know, the, when you start living a little too Christian-esque, <laughs> you know, and uh, you're not going to your typical Judeo-Christian 501c3 church, and you're actually dressing modest, and you have a, a, a moral all-white society. Yeah, that, no, eh, that's not going to happen. Yeah, well, I, David I had at least eight or nine wives. Away with it. David had at yeah. least eight or nine wives. I I don't even remember much of that. I I don't. It's they're listed in one Chronicles three one. I don't I don't think a lot of these are mentioned in in two Samuel though. I didn't mean to change the topic. I'm just trying to. He had no children with Saul's daughter. No, it's still topic. Saul's daughter was Michal. Michael Michal M I C H A L. However you want to pronounce it. According to one Chronicles three one year, at least eight wives, probably nine. Uh, I don't know, it's hard to tell because they, they, they mention the mothers of a lot of his sons and then they run out and, and stop mentioning the mothers. And then there are sons by all kinds of concubines and Well, I mean it is recorded in two thousand four at the Colorado City, Arizona compound, if you want to call it that. The leader Warren Jeffs kicked out twenty men, including the mayor, and gave their wives and children to other men. He claimed that he acted on orders from God and that he'd been divinely instructed to do that. Well, you know, and anybody could claim that, but, you yeah. know, Paul says that um, in times past, Yahweh spoke to us through the prophets, and now he speaks to us through the Son. And, and I don't think we have any further revelation except through Scripture and the Gospel. If you don't get it out of the Scripture and you don't get it out of the Gospel, you're, you're just inventing your own religion. It, it's not Christianity anymore. It's it's um, Billyanity or Mikeyanity or Brianity. It's not Christianity. Gospel according to Warren Jeffs. Right, exactly. And, and if people were fooled by that, well, well, that's their misfortune. They should have read their Bibles. So who's going to come up here and say hi? Hello, Robert. Can't hide on me. I can't hide. 
Nice avatar. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> now, you were saying that the Great Commission is, for all practical purposes, over. Yes, it's over. And, and you're, uh, when do you believe that that really ended? But when the last white nations were, were, were converted to Christianity. That, that's the, the, the end of the period of the fishers. All the lost sheep have either heard the message or had the opportunity to learn of the message. Right. So all this churchiality today where we're going and saving the Mamsers, that's just nonsense. Of course it's nonsense. Well, I have some of these clowns that tell me it's not over because there are people in the Amazon and people in the Congo and people on islands in the Pacific and in the mountains of Pakistan, and they've never even heard of Jesus, and they have to hear of Jesus. How do we get so off track with this one? I mean, it, it, has anybody taught this in the past? Jesuits? Oh, they're the ones that taught us that we have to go out and convert all these animals. Oh, no, I don't mean that. I mean, where where did we... But, well, what's um, Jeremiah 16.16? Jeremiah 16.16 clearly tells us that the period of the, um, of the fishers ends. I'm going to it right now. Okay, I'm just trying to figure out what we're in now. We're just in a nebulous period of what? Behold, I will send for many fishers says Yahweh, and they shall fish them. That was the apostolic period. That was the spread of Christianity. It's been done. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from out of every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. And, and Clifton did a paper, Who Were the Hunters? And, and showed that that had to be the archaeologists that discovered the identity message. Well, well, from which, from whose work the identity message was discovered. That's, that's what I sincerely believe. Who else could the hunters be? Well, Bill, couldn't the hunters be um, just continuing the message to the individual whites in countries that just, just don't get it or just have been isolated? No, because what, who, who were they hunting out of the holes of the rocks? They weren't the Japanese in Okinawa, I know that. Clifton has a paper, Who Were the Hunters, that describes that, but I, I believe that that's the correct assessment of the verse. For my eyes are upon all their ways, they are not hid from my face, is talking about the dispersion of Israel. Neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. Now, if you read Jeremiah 31, 31, after the promise of a new covenant, and, and I read it tonight, you'll see that there's a statement that... um. No, no more will they teach, know the Lord, for they all shall know me. And, and we all do know him. Every white nation has received the gospel message. What they do with it's up to them. So these people saying, know the Lord, they're just kidding themselves. We've all had that opportunity to accept or reject them. And they say that every single bipedal creature on this planet has to convert and accept Jesus as their Savior. The second coming won't occur. Well, Jesus didn't say when the Son of Man returns, he'll find the entire world as faithful. He said, shall he find faith in the earth? Right. Question, a rhetorical one. Exactly. He's expressing that when he returns that he'll be shocked. If he could be shocked, but he won't be because he knows what it's going to be. He knows the situation. Faith shall have diminished greatly. 
This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Now every white nation has had the opportunity, has had that opportunity. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor saying, and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them. And, and that's happened. I mean, we don't need to know God because we've all had that opportunity to take him or leave him, to take Christ or to leave him. Yeah, and if the demons themselves know who Yahshua is, I mean, how much more the Adamic offspring of Jacob, Israel? James just says most white people do not know Yahweh, and, and James is right, but we've all had that opportunity. There's a Bible in every house for how many centuries now? Two, three, four? All I can say is Yahweh is good. You know, really you know, sort of. Go ahead, John. Uh, well, you know, I've been, uh, I look at my family, for instance, I mean, and I'm like, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I'm the only one who's listening to the, any of this. Well, well, right, John. That's most of us. But that—that—that's um. Yeah, you know, there are other prophecies that talk about that apostasy. But your ancestors, for for how many generations, probably have um, understood the the Bible to to at least some degree. Knew God, went to church, whatever they did, knew the difference between right and wrong, wrong, learned the Ten Commandments. And if they didn't care about the Bible to some extent. They might have taken up with Arabs or Jews, and you'd be a Turk by now. Yeah, so all these turkeys running around saying Christianity has failed are a bunch of bozos. Well, well, right. What's happened with Christianity is exactly what Yahweh said would happen with it. He wasn't making a faith that the whole world was going to adopt. Arrow is the way to righteousness. Why is the path to destruction? It's, It's prophecy that most of his people would reject him. When they thump their chest and point to the fact that there are a billion Catholics, half a billion Pentecostals, and they point to their numbers for how great their church is, they're really just pointing to a demonstration that they're not the lost sheep. They're not following the message of God because their church has taken in the world. It appeals to the world. Right. I don't know. I can't get through to anybody in my family. It's like they're too busy with worldly things. Well, Well, you know something? When the time comes that they need to know what you said, said it they'll remember it they'll say oh he was right we're in trouble <laughs> would it be too late then if they're sheep they go with the sheep no matter what well it's the catalyzing event isn't it bill whatever See, takes place thirty-eight, thirty-nine. right so bill wait a minute now i'm getting some some, some sort of conflicting uh, ideas here now if you're an israelite you're going with the sheep but Wides the path to destruction, and yet you're going to be saved anyway. Well, how many of us are already with the goats? What's going to become of their children? Their children are going to be destroyed. And they themselves? They themselves won't be destroyed. If if they're Israelites, they'll be with the sheep. They'll be punished. If you're a race mixer, you're going to be punished at at that time, but your spirit will survive. Well, I'm I'm just concerned about... With the attitudes most people display? Yes, even with the attitudes most people display. We have a ways to go yet. This isn't right around the corner. I'm sorry. It's just not. So what is the unpardonable sin then? Race mixing because you can't get your children back. But for the for the white mixer then? He's going to be punished in this life, according to Jeremiah. 
And that day comes if you're found with, with that married to strangers, or, or if you're found wedded to this Babylonian system, you're you're probably going to to be punished with the system. You're going to die with it. That that's the, the um. When Babylon falls, our people are told, "Come out from her, lest ye share in her punishments." People who are caught up in Babylon, they will partake of the sins and they'll receive of the plagues. Right, exactly. Doesn't doesn't it say the same about the uh, the cities too? The same reference, Babylon, and also the cities you're supposed to leave because they will be utterly destroyed. But, well, it's just probably not a good idea to be in the city when, when um when the proverbial poop hits the fan because that that's that's the most likely place you you you'll position to suffer in those punishments because of all of the um the racial makeup of our cities today. Yeah, you have to have heeded that warrant. That's been an obvious warning for quite a while to anybody that's looked at anything is to get out of the cities and you know, I know unfortunately for some of us it seems that you know we've felt like we've had to be in them, but, um, yeah, there might be a heavy price to pay. You get caught with your pants down sticking in them, so. A lot of this judgment's already been going on. I mean, look at how many people have suffered in our cities. Look at Detroit. Look at Chicago. Look at New York. And how many of our people who stayed behind in those cities have been race-mixed and, and um, mar married the, these people of these other races? Yeah. Or, or been hurt in other ways by them. Well, Bill, uh, my my thought is that uh, what I'm trying to get at is now there's some of our people who just aren't repentant, no matter what you tell them or no matter what they you can show them or, or even God himself will come here. Do you think they, exactly. would, they would remain uh, uh, obstinate or would they repent in some way? How can you repent? Well, well that's the, yeah, you know, there was supposed to be a great apostasy. But we're told that it was going to happen. We're told that most people would be scoffers in the last days. And, and the bottom line is that our people are going to have to suffer enough to come to the realization that God is the only answer. Well, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they put away their strange wives and sent their strange children packing, didn't they? Right. And, and our people rejected the sovereignty of God 3,000 years ago. And, and that's the story of the Bible, is that in the end, they're going to realize that only God can be sovereign, and it's an absolute necessity that, that he is, that he is our king, because we can't do this ourselves. Well, we can't manage a society outside of um, the will of God or, or the laws of God. Now, how many people today would put away their strange wives and strange children and be done with it? Yeah, right. Most of them would be scoffers. So... Um how much punishment is so if every Israelite is to be saved, some of them are going to have to suffer even in the afterlife, it seems. But, well, you know something? This is far from over, I think. Well, true, but uh, I just don't see uh, a whole lot of them repenting. Oh, they will. There's no doubt. Well, isn't, doesn't Judaism, uh, the Jews' religion, don't they promote, don't they worship and, and encourage the promotion of they actually encourage the promotion of suffering, and uh, we, you know, we've bought into it through our self-deception and accepting the other races. And uh, I mean, all of us have been conditioned, if we're honest with ourselves, in the past towards this 
so-called universalism BS. And uh, it takes a lot of uh, it, t- it takes a big big heart and big mind to turn one's back on that that whole program. It takes all of our energy, not part of it, all of it. Well, the rate we're race mixing now, it, it's um, two generations that there's only going to be half the white people on the planet that there are now, and, and that's one of the um, one of the prophecies in scripture that the children of the desolate would be much greater in number than of she who has the husband. She who has the husband is Israel. We have a husband. We have Yahweh as our husband. The children of the desolate are those who do not have Yahweh as a husband. You know, um, I had uh, exchanged several emails with uh, a fellow, a white man who married a Latin woman. Uh, I'm not sure what uh, where she was from, but he had children as well. And boy, the exchange that he, I got from him, you know, was this guy is going to have to go through a whole lot of suffering in order for him to repent because he just lambasted me. Uh, so, so when his children are killed, when his wife is killed, uh, at the end, then of he'll the- then he'll want to repent, right? <laughs> then he'll realize he did well, something really? wrong. Oops. I mean, will he or will he blame God? I think when the time comes that, that we'll have no choice and we'll realize it. And that's why we're being that's put right, through yes. this. So that we have to have, well, we have to accept Yahweh as sovereign. And we realize that. And, and um, it seems fantastic and, and it seems difficult. And, and we like, there's a lot of hard-hearted people out there. But that's how we've been our whole history. I mean, think about the people in, in the desert. That were hard-hearted, that, that worshipped the calf. Uh, I mean, Moses was only gone a couple of weeks and they slipped. And and think of all the great things they must have seen coming out of Egypt, and, and they still backslid so easily. Well, Bill, doesn't it say that Yahweh is going to destroy two-thirds of his people because they're unrepentant? And only a third will survive? Well, well there's no place where it says that explicitly explicitly there's certain prophecies in the revelation that um people infer that from and and i'll be covering them as i complete this revelation series oh, okay because i know i've read that yeah those prophecies are on a broader historical perspective and and they have to be read in context actually two-thirds of our race has already been wiped out since roman times once you understand it um all, the entire Mediterranean coastline, practically, and, and um, most of what we consider to be the Middle East and the Near East today were entirely white at one time. Think about it. Iran was a white nation. Not anymore. Syria, Jordan, they were white countries. Not anymore. Armenia, the Caucasus, Romania, they were white countries. Not Even anymore. Even a lot of India, right? Even a lot of India, right. Well, I also heard that we inhabited... Um we used to inhabit part of Cuba and even Brazil, but then that was, you know, taken over. Well, well Cuba was um, inhabited by both white Spaniards and a great number of Jews and some Arab Spaniards. So it was basically a mixed race and, and a lot of black slaves. So it was basically a mixed race nation as it started, or, or a mixed race country, I should say, as it started. There was always a heavy Jewish population in Cuba. And in all of those Spanish cities of, of South America. The, 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 um, 
the Inquisition was going on at the same time that South America was being settled by the conquistadors, right? And the Jews were fleeing Spain and, and Portugal in large numbers and, and settling in the New World. Bishop of Havana wrote a letter back to the King of Spain in the 1500s, begging him not to send any more Jews to Spain to, to Cuba, because um, he was in danger of losing Havana as a Catholic city. There were so many Jews there. Yeah, Hitler sent us a message too, but we didn't read it. Maybe a few of us, yeah. Right, James. A, a large number of Cubans and Puerto Ricans all have Jewish blood, and Mexicans, and Filipinos well, too. Well, Mexicans, aren't they just um, black slaves mixed with the uh, native Mexicans of that country? Most Mexicans are Sephardic Well, a little Jewish blood, as far as I'm concerned, basically makes one a Jew. So, so yeah, Brian's not... Um, it's hard to argue with that. Even though it sounds like a really general statement, it's hard to argue with it. There, were, there are some recorded instances of Jewish conquistadors mating with 50 to 100, sometimes 200 native women. They would take hundreds of native concubines, and you'd have one Sephardic. Now he'd have four, five, six hundred kids within five or ten years. And they went on to become the modern Mestizo race. But I'd say they're all Sephardic. They're all Jews. Yeah, I can more than back Brian up with that statement with this website link. Check this out. This will, this will totally justify it. Also, it's worth noting that the average Mexican has about five to ten percent Negroid blood, but they don't. Most of them don't know that. If you right, there were several hundred thousand slaves, black slaves, in Mexico before the war. And they were all absorbed. And if you ask a Mexican, "Hey, is it true your great great grandfather was a Negro?" They might try and knife you. And they really just make a pretense of Catholicism. It doesn't mean anything to them. They just worship the Virgin Mary because they, they pretty much, for lack of a better term, they get a hard on over thinking about a white virgin. Exactly. And if the church took Mary out of Catholicism, it would lose all of Latin America in a day. Because that is their religion, the worship of the white virgin with the baby, the little baby, all they care about. And I've seen that firsthand a hundred thousand times. I mean, it's crazy. They all have giant Mary tattoos on their backs, and it's absolute idolatry. Uh, I don't get it. Is this site, Mike, uh, an anti-Jewish site? Because it says crypto-Jews on it. It's pro-Jewish. Yeah, no, it's very pro-Jewish. It's, it's all mestizo beaners that are finding their <laughs> roots in Judaism. Mestizo beaners. Mexi-Jews. <laughs> Well, it's strange that you're using the term crypto-Jew. Well, crypto, they used to use that in the DBS camps as as a hidden Jew. It didn't necessarily mean a nefariously hidden. It just meant uh, we're finding our roots. We're coming out from not necessarily hiding our roots. That's what it's saying. You know, it's crypto-Jew is, is something that, that, that Jews even use themselves as a, as a proper term. Well, it's not any real big surprise as messed up as Mexico is. Well, a lot of those cartels in Mexico, they're run by Jews, hook-nosed people. They're getting a lot of their weapons from Israel. Surprise, surprise. Israeli hand grenades, Galil rifles. They have us believe that they're getting their stuff from Walmart. Well, I can't walk into Walmart and buy a fully automatic Israeli Galil. But if I'm a crypto-Jew in Mexico working in a cartel, I can probably get my um, cousins in Haifa to send a ship full. So these people are surrounding us. <laughs> or we're surrounded already.
Yeah, instead of remember the Alamo, it's remember the Birmingham March, right? Hmm. Now, do most um, do most Jews know that they're the sons and daughters of Edom, or are they also oblivious to oblivious to it, like most whites are oblivious that they're true Israel? What do you think, Bill? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. I, I was distracted for a minute. Do most do most Jews know that they're the sons of Satan? I'd say that oh, there's, a, there's a huge, huge portion of them that do. Look at the yeah. former head of the Russian Jewish Congress. His name was, was either Evgeny or Yuri, but that's not important. His last name is. His last name was Satanovsky. S-A-T-A-N-O-V-S-K-Y. Satanovsky. Well, and a big problem with that kind of question, too, is it, it raises a point that a lot of people like to, and I'm not saying you're doing that legal. I'm just saying that a lot of others have, Raise that questions that victims are Jews are the victim of their own propaganda and that only the top people know and you know the other ones don't know. But we need to understand that genetically and inherently Jews are evil as a whole anyway. So whether they realize it themselves that that's their place on on earth here or not is irrelevant. I don't even think they think of Satan like we do. I don't think a lot of them even care that they they act like satan they surely do but i don't most jews i think are like most catholics and even like brian said with the names they they know something and a lot of them do know something's up but most jews i think are like most catholics that they really just give their religion lip service and don't care however at the same time they sure as hell do act like satan all the time they have no conscience well, the Talmud tells whatever they want to do to us is great, and that's what they're going to do anyway, so it just reinforces what they want to do. Right. There's some guy who runs this website called AshleyMadison.com, and they have five or six million registered users. It's for married He's people a kite. who want to, want to have an affair. Yeah, his name is like Noel Biderman, and he was giving a lecture to a Jewish business group about reconciling his, his Judaic morals with facilitating for people having affairs that he, he, he doesn't see it as threatening his Jewishness, that he, he does this. And he, he said that he still thinks he's a good Jew. Well, of course well, it's not. He is a good Jew. Acting like the devil makes him a good Jew. Yeah, they gave that guy just oodles amount of uh, staged opposition promotion all over the mainstream media. I mean, they had him on The View, uh, you know, on Fox, MSNBC, uh, Ellen, all, all these different shows. I, I was, I looked that guy up pretty intensely to say, you know, who is this dirty? I mean, I mean, I knew it was a kike, and I had no doubts of it. I just wanted to see what he was really about, and uh, yeah, he is just a calculated vile piece of work. And um, yeah, they, they gave him promotion everywhere. He swears. Well, right. So they're all calculated and vile. He would never cheat on his wife, though. He swears up and down, and he said he would be devastated if she cheated on him. She's probably some blonde shiksa woman that he had to pay. But if your wife agrees to let you um, do all these uncouth, immoral things, is that really cheating on her? Sure, the rabbis could debate that for a month. Well, well, what I'm saying is that just sounds like more Jewish double talk, right? Aren't they always looking for loopholes like that? Oy vey, she agreed. Bye. Better stop that, Brian. Victor's going to kick you off. <laughs> Well, I don't know about you folks, but whenever I run into a kike, um, they're shaking in their boots just because the presence of the anointed is there. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the Almighty. And that's the way we should live our lives and uh, not be afraid of them. I, I think there's, you know, it's stupid to be afraid of the Jew.
Well, I think with all the turmoil that is going on in the world, I think they're pretty scared right now because they know it's going to be coming at their doorstep soon. Well, they should be. Well, Satan knows he has but a short time. That, that's why they're in, in such a rush to um, to exterminate our race with, with their race-mixing propaganda and, and the, the frenzy of, of um, owl philosophies that have come out into the world in full force the last 50 years. Yeah, especially in the last 20, 30, huh? It, it, well, it's been an ongoing... Much well, well, right. It definitely seems to be building to a crescendo. But on the other hand, I think that it, it's as far as our people realizing there's something wrong and, and, and realizing that they have to repent of, of their embrace of the, devil, the children of the devil and, and everything that they've been tricked into doing, uh, I think that might be another generation or two off sometimes. I, I mean, it's, you know, it's very hard to gauge, right? Yes, sir. And it's actually the goodness of, of Yahweh that, that leads us to that point. Right. Of course, if he wants to accelerate it, he he can do that. But um, it, it like John said, it's hard to imagine that people are going to repent, and and it still is in in quite a few cases. And you walk through town, and and most people just simply they they don't even know there's a problem. How do you repent unless you realize there's a problem? Good night, Robert. Well, that was. The Jewish question is most definitely uh, uh, a a huge um, blockade when people don't ask the Jewish question. But what else do we have? We got to have something else before this night's over, right? Oh, I guess not. Hey, Bill, I do uh, have one more thing. Uh, it's about the government. Now, if we were able to form a Christian society as in the past, now. Aren't and we were, had control of the land, let's say the the, the national uh, boundaries. Well, I mean, we'd have to issue punishments, laws, and punishments, and all that. Well, how do you reconcile that with the Christian belief right now? The um, Christian community espoused in the New Testament operates within the framework of the laws of the empire, which is why the Christian community cannot enforce the laws of God, which is why we are told not to condemn our brethren who are sinners and unrepentant. Rather, we are instructed to put them out of our community, and Yahweh will judge them. And that is still the same attitude that we should have today, because we are still basically forced to operate within the bounds of the, the beast empire. And what if, let's say uh, we have an entire nation of us who are, you know, Christian thinking, not that that would happen, but in the proper sense of the word, how would they deal with someone who is unrepentant or an aliens who come among them? How, how do they deal with that? Or somebody commits crimes. They have to be put... But they, you, you have to cut that person off from your community, John. And how do you do that? Put them out of your house. You stop dealing with him. You stop working with him. You, you, if he works for you, you fire his ass. If, yeah, you know, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to do it. You don't trade but with him any longer. him out of town is not in the, in the cards then, right? No. Oh, but you just cut yourself off from that person. 
But the whole beast empire is, is based upon this multicultural soup. So, to a certain extent, uh, one has to one has to deal with these. So, all right. Not, so, all right. So, if a king becomes a Christian, what's he to do? Just resign being king, abdicate? Can't serve God and Mammon. So he can't rule over the kingdom. Not unless he can make his kingdom a Christian kingdom. Well, he's king. He can do anything he wants. Well, well, right, but you know what? Rothschilds come along and crush that kingdom. I think Adolf Hitler tried to do that, right? And and it failed. If you look at the principles behind National Socialism, they're absolutely Christian. And and they're ethnocentric, which makes it properly Christian. And, and look at what happened. The beast crushed them. In fulfillment of prophecy. He tried to separate the wheat from the tares, and, and um, it wasn't part of the plan. Boy, people are going to get one big surprise when they find out Hitler's a great guy. Yes, they are. Okay, I have a question. Um, for those like me that were led astray for so long, not knowing the real truth, and I'm still learning, um, what does, uh, what's, what's in store for us? Well, what do you mean? What's this? Well, we all have that opportunity to um, repent and come to the truth, right? Uh, I mean, now it depends on what you do with it. Okay. Have a choice to follow the ways of the world or, or try to follow the ways of God. Not, none of us are going to be perfect at, at, at following the ways of God, right? But we have to try. And, and we have to try to gain an understanding into what they are and, and try to live by them. Absolutely. That, and, Drew, look, you're already doing a lot better than most people. You basically just gave up pork and seafood and went out and bought a lot of turkey meats to eat instead of pork uh, hot dogs. So right there, you're basically doing a lot better than most people because I know a lot of people who refuse to give up pork and all that food, and their excuse is because it tastes too good. Well, well, right, but the food laws are also a small part of it, right? I'm also very eager to learn. Like, I just, I want to know everything, like, right now. But like, Yeah, right. Well, you have to start yeah. reading, right? That's that. That's the best way to learn is to read. Um, I, I plan to. Like, I, I've been doing some here and some here, and, you know, I'm trying very, very hard. Yeah, there, there's no pill, right? And, and a, lot of, a lot of it, um, sister, is unlearning what we've learned. <laughs> What's that false? I agree with also. Yeah, that's. I think that's the biggest part, actually. It's 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 very hard. It's very difficult because I'm I'm 20 now, and you know I've always had these feelings in my heart, and I always thought, well, maybe I'm just I'm just nuts. And then like a friend, very good friend, you know, finally, you know, was like, all right, well, this is what I go by, and I'm like, well, that just makes it, it makes sense now. It just all made sense to me and that's one here <laughs> well that's wonderful and and with that i'm going to close up i'm going to wrap up this program i mean we could go down to the open house and and um talk down there right and thank you everybody and that, that's it i don't have anything else to say this is the christian year open forum and i think it's february 8th now no it's almost february 8th <laughs>